This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, October 18th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, hospital triage continues. County funds area nonprofits. The art of witchcraft in the 21st century. And a mountain weather forecast. The Telluride Medical Center, once in critical condition, appears to be approaching some momentary stability. The saga is well known to many by now. This summer, the Telluride Hospital District Board came forward and announced it would close its doors, unable to make payroll without a financial bailout before the end of October. Area governments responded to the call but they are still hammering out the funding details as the deadline is fast approaching. On Wednesday, the San Miguel County commissioners delivered their emergency contribution to the medical center. County Manager Mike Bordonia says the commissioners and county staff have discussed the matter fully. And it's my uh, recommendation that we do move forward um, and provide $500,000 to the medical center as a grant The hospital district is eager to receive those funds. Bordonia adds, They are going to need their money starting at the end of this month. While the news of the med center's financial situation came as a shock back in the summer, it's been much discussed since. And, says Commissioner Lance Waring, Um, We've been talking about this for a couple months now, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we've reached a point where we're all in alignment. That alignment is a yes. Commissioners unanimously voted to extend the funds to the hospital district to be issued in $100,000 increments over the next five months. While the county is the first to act on the bailout, the town of Telluride will look to issue a loan of $650,000 next week. And, adds Bordonia, Town of Mountain Village combined with uh, the Mountain Village owners uh, Association is proposing a grant, um, so not a loan, for 650000 as well. So that puts the, the medical center at $1.3 million. Originally, the request had been for $2 million. The med center has said $1.3 million will be enough in the immediate term, so long as its ballot measure passes this November. That measure, 6A, will ask voters for a property tax increase to aid the med center's finances long term. The county's grant comes with a stipulation. If the ballot measure should not pass, the hospital district will dramatically reduce its services in order to stretch the bailout funds as long as possible. At the med center, explains Bordonia. We have some expensive but um, premium services that are being offered, and we appreciate those, but we want to make sure that that the offering of those do not um, precipitate an early closure of the medical center, if that makes sense. The county will use up the last of its federal COVID relief funding, about $400,000, for the bailout. The rest of the money will come from the county's general fund. Last week, the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners took up the annual task of distributing money to regional nonprofits supporting projects in public health, recreation and open space, transportation, equity and advocacy issues, and so on. In addition to the usual, says County Manager Mike Bordonia, this year... There are numerous new requests, some of them very large, uh, a lot of them from arts organizations which in the past the commissioners have not 
focused on as much as other areas. Uh, your initiatives around behavioral health, early childhood, uh, affordable housing, you've tended more towards those types of organizations in the past. Many area nonprofits request funding year after year, and the county budgets with those needs in mind. New requests coming in from Palm Arts, Telluride AIDS Benefit, and the Telluride Choral Society opened the possibility of directing money towards the arts. But County Commissioner Ann Brown worries about stretching the county too thin. But I do have some concerns about generally our opening the door to arts organizations, given that that is not really core to what we do. They're really important organizations in our community, um, and yet I feel like they are a little bit outside of our core mission. Commissioner Lance Waring was absent from the meeting, so it was up to Commissioners Brown and Holstrom to decide which requests would be met. They opted to retain the county's traditional focus and decline funding requests from arts organizations. Part of their concern was funding organizations which serve the entire county, not just Telluride in the East End. County Parks and Open Space Director Janet Kask, who makes recommendations on parks-related requests, notes she's keeping track as well. You know, it seems that only some of them make an effort to provide services and programs to our West End uh, County residents and communities. Um, some make an effort to work with and serve the Latinx and Ute Mountain Ute Tribe communities with diversity and bilingual outreach. I do scrutinize their applications and all of the, the programming that they plan to provide for the following year, mm -hmm. um, because I think there are some groups who could, who could be making a better effort. But commissioners came forward generously and approved more or less all of the funding requests related to open space, ranging from partnerships with Telluride Nordic to the San Miguel Watershed Coalition to Telluride Adaptive Sports. Commissioners also made efforts to battle food insecurity, increasing funding for Telluride Senior Lunch Program, and taking steps to support the Norwood Food Pantry. The future of the pantry became uncertain this fall when its longtime management moved on and it lost its space. Norwood-based organization The Fresh Food Hub stepped in to take the reins and requested a multi-year commitment of support from the commissioners. But the county balked at such an unusual agreement. Bordonia explains, The precedent that other organizations are likely to come forth and say, well, we want this kind of certainty yeah. when, in fact, eventually we will be in an economic downturn. And I, I don't want us to be in a position where every organization that we're currently funding thinks that their funding is permanent. Commissioners are eager, however, to support the Fresh Food Hub on a year-to-year -year basis, and they approved its funding request. Future discussions will address how to support the pantry long-term, without setting a potentially problematic precedent. The days are becoming cool and crisp. Halloween is just around the corner, and The Fig, a local arts collective, is delving into the Salem witch trials with a reading of the new play, The Art of Witchcraft in the 21st Century. It's a brand new script that was written by an Atlanta-based playwright for Telluride. Uh, it's a two-hander, which means two people will be reading the story, and then we've got someone on stage directions. That's Kimberly Braun, one of the actors performing in the reading. She's acting alongside Mary Higgins with stage direction by Ursula Ostrander. The play follows two women, and while Higgins says witchcraft does make its way in, it's more a story about people, 
being a creative and making art. It is a little bit about witchcraft, but it is also something that I think folks who are into art and understand trying to do a work-life art balance and how difficult that is, it'll really resonate for audience members who understand that. Braun adds, it's a postmodern feminist response to the play The Crucible. This work that we've held up as the high holy text around Salem, and it's looking at the stories of women and Halloween from that perspective. The play was written by Brooke Aaron Smith, directed by Lindsay Ray Taylor, both friends of Braun. Higgins says the stories of friendship show up on the stage. The main story is kind of one of friendship, and I feel like I love Halloween, and most of my favorite Halloween stories are all like based around kind of friendship and like sisterhood or brotherhood or however you look at it. Um, and I would say that's kind of what it lends to it is some elements of spooky, but also kind of just like, um, you know, in the pagan wheel of the year of holidays, they all are about community and coming together and like the brethren of man, I guess. And so I think it does encompass that feeling. For those less familiar with a play reading, Braun notes it hints back to nostalgic storytelling. It's sort of like in Shakespeare's day when they would go to hear a play and the text was paramount. It's not as much of a visual art form like television, which has uh, visual tele in the title. Um, it's just going to be listening to the story and your imagination. So it's sort of like being a little kid and having a book read aloud to you before bed. The play reading of The Art of Witchcraft in the 21st Century will take place at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery on Thursday, October 19th. Doors open at 6.30. The show is at 7 p.m. The performance is free and open to all ages. If parents are comfortable with some swears, there will be chocolate. What's not to love about a fair? Even better, the world's fair. The Smith family is sure excited to visit the 1904 World's Fair in this weekend's performance of Meet Me in St. Louis, brought to you by the Sheridan Arts Foundation's Not-So-Young People's Theater. The show follows the Smith family as they await the fair, and, with the help of their mutual respect and good-natured humor, they experience romance, opportunity, and heartbreak. The musical features seven of the best-loved songs from the film, featuring Judy Garland, and six additional songs written especially for the stage, highlighting 22 members of the community of all ages and under the direction of Leah Heidenreich and Jen Nyman-Julia, Meet Me in St. Louis is destined to be a delight. The performance will run Thursday, October 19th through Saturday, October 21st at 7 p.m. with a matinee on Sunday, October 22nd at 2 p.m. at the Sheridan Opera House. Tickets are available at SheridanOperaHouse.com. Colorado wildlife have been known to don Halloween and holiday decorations during this costumed season. Antlered mammals in particular can get tangled in string lights, garlands, webbing, and more. These entanglements pose a danger to animals, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife is asking residents to check their yards and properties for potential hazards. In addition to holiday lights and decorations, soccer nets, tomato cages, garden items, hammocks, and more can ensnare wildlife. CPW asks residents to hang string lights at least six feet above the ground and carefully secure all decorations. Fall and winter often bring more wildlife traffic into neighborhood areas as high country terrain becomes forbidding. 
Meanwhile, October through December is the rut season, during which deer and elk can be territorial and even aggressive towards humans. CBW asks that any entangled wildlife be reported to an officer so the animal can be returned safely to the wild. The number for the Montrose CPW office is 970-252-6000. Last week, the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners discussed a ballot measure appearing before Colorado voters this election season, Proposition HH. Their discussion was inconclusive, and the commissioners did not take a position on the measure. The proposition aims to provide Colorado property owners with some tax relief, but balances those reductions by withholding potential Tabor refunds. Reporting from Denver, KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods has more on the question posed to voters. Property taxes across the state are expected to spike next year. Proposition HH would reduce property valuation rates over the next decade and allow property owners to exempt part of their property's value from taxation. It would also reduce the money available for refunds under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR, to help the state pay for the loss in tax revenue. Critics oppose those reductions, but one of the measure's sponsors, Senator Chris Hansen, says they're necessary. That's how we can make sure that schools and fire districts, et cetera, um, you know, are, are kept whole. And this idea that it's ending Tabor refunds is just demonstrably false. Even with the reductions, Tabor refunds would still increase next year. Over the following two years, they would be reduced by less than $100 for most Coloradans. The money retained by the government would go to the state education fund. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. A tiny home village for unhoused veterans in Boulder County welcomed its first four residents this summer. The project serves as an example of how cities can work with developers to create housing solutions and turn neighbors into allies. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Alexis Kenyon reports. On a two and a half acre plot of land a few miles west of downtown Longmont near the city airport, Jennifer Siebold, executive director of Veterans Community Project, is showing me around the partly finished lot of Longmont's new tiny home village. So, I mean, this is, you're looking at the village space, the community center in the middle of the village here is where all of our services, on-site case management will happen. There are 26 quaint but sophisticated-looking tiny homes. They have stone siding and large covered porches and will soon become transitional housing for unhoused veterans in Boulder County. You can see ceilings are pretty high in here. Makes it feel a little bit bigger. We don't do loft design. Inside, the rooms are light-filled, and there's space for a table and a queen-size bed. So it's got everything your standard home has. It's just small. This project is part of a Boulder County-wide effort to end homelessness using a strategy called Housing First. The idea is that homelessness is caused because people don't have anywhere to live. And so if you want to tackle homelessness or solve it, you should start with giving people somewhere to live. Nicole Spear is a Boulder City Council member and says the county committed to this housing first approach in 2017. You know, we have, I think since 2017 when we started this, we've housed about 1,600 individuals, which is a pretty substantial amount. And I think we can also see that it's not really enough. One of the biggest hurdles for the county, other than sky-high housing prices, has been finding a place to build communities for unhoused people. Kevin Molshine is a Longmont real estate developer. 
He says initially when the city of Longmont approached him about incorporating housing for unhoused communities in his real estate development, he was sure it didn't make sense. And it's really for the same reason that developers will always shy away, and I would shy away, from helping homelessness in a new development, which is you can't sell houses next to a homeless encampment. And that's understandable. In an effort to prove to the city of Longmont that it could not be done, he decided to go on a tour. He stopped at five different places where developers attempted to incorporate housing for unhoused communities within an otherwise typical real estate development. At his very last stop, Mulshine went to the flagship Veterans Community Project in Kansas City, Missouri. And what really did a 180 for me was it was such a vibrant campus and so so volunteer-centric that I thought, you know, a new development, there's always this competition who can come up with the greatest amenity, which means the size of the pool and the workout facilities and all that. I thought, well, maybe one of the amenities you could do, you could do a, a village like this. I'm 63. I'd love to walk down the street and help a, you know, a veteran with a resume or something. Maybe it's kind of a negative. We could actually turn it to be a positive because people will embrace compassion as an amenity. When Molshine got back to town, he agreed to donate 2.4 acres of land to VCP for the tiny home village. Another bonus, though, is that Longmont expedited his development process. He remembers one particular meeting with the mayor of Longmont and the founder of Veterans Community Project, Jason Kander. Jason said, look, we're on comment number three of about 500. Jason Kander said, I, I don't mean to be short, but can we get to every comment that's so important that I've got to go count homeless on the streets tonight? And that stopped the meeting. And the mayor said, we're not doing this. Let's just go to the important comments, address them, and move on with this project. And it's things like that where he just said, stop. We need to help these veterans who are homeless. And so well, they probably saved us two years of entitlement. And frankly, expediting the project didn't cost the city a dime. Molshine says, for the most part, the entire experience has been a win-win. He sold the VCP community as an amenity to the builders. And the people who moved in say they like to be able to walk over to the campus and work with the veterans. You know, and I and please don't take this as being cold. But I think I'm pretty close to the general population where maybe I have a little bit of a fear of living next door to a lot of homeless people. I don't have a fear of living next door to VCP campus. In fact, I live a bit of a mile from this VCP. But I think if you then go to the other fruit that's also low-hanging, could you help single moms? Yeah, you know, no kids should be homeless. And, and, and maybe someday we'll get to where a developer could do a housing solution for a general homeless population. I'm not sure. But being honest, we thought of the low-hanging fruit, which is almost veterans, and match that with VCP services, and we said, we'd do this all day long. It's a nice thing to do, and everybody wants to help a veteran. And as friendly and accommodating as VCP's model is to the house community, for the unhoused community and individuals living in it, the model leaves out a lot of them. According to Jennifer Siebel, VCP's executive director, VCP does randomized drug tests, so tiny homes are only available to veterans who have a record of being clean and sober and can stay that way. They won't take veterans with a recent history of violent crime, and the tiny homes aren't ADA compliant, so no veterans with wheelchairs or major disabilities. And then in terms of moving into the village, I mean, the biggest thing I will say is it's just a willingness to engage in working on yourself. And so if you're not willing to engage in that, it's, it's probably not going to be the place for you. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's really no major like disqualifiers. We can't have sex offenders just because we do a family units. 
for all the people who don't qualify to live at VCP housing or are not up for so much oversight, Siebold says they can look for services at other community partners. Absolutely. I mean, that's VCP's philosophy, and that's why I say we don't reinvent services. We partner with people who do those things well. Uh, That's really how we operate. I have to say, it is a community issue to solve. And frankly, I am incredibly proud of what the city of Loma has done. And But truthfully, I think it's just been a community-wide effort. And I see it as a partnership among all of those people. Kevin Mulshine thinks developers and also cities can learn a lot from the way the city of Longmont dealt with the Veterans Community Project. Or every time I see it, a large development approved that you know, doesn't have any affordable housing, say, local government, you kind of missed an opportunity there because it wouldn't have taken much, you know. And while Boulder County is on track to be the first subregion in the metro area to reach functionally zero veteran homelessness, in the past few years, more and more people are entering homelessness for the first time. Boulder City Councilwoman Nicole Spears says just in Boulder City limits, 300 BVSD students experienced homelessness last year. That number is close to 800 countywide. We also really have to be focused on prevention because without focusing on prevention, We can keep putting more and more and more money into enforcing our camping ban and, um, you know, putting people into housing and these building home programs. But it's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a dam that's about to break. The first four VCP tiny home residents moved in at the end of August. More will be able to move in as they complete construction of the tiny home village in coming months. In order to complete the project, Siebold says, they still need to raise about $6.4 million in capital. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clear skies tonight with a low around 40 degrees. Thursday, expect sun and a high in the mid-60s, followed by a clear night with a low near 40. Friday should bring more sun and balmy conditions with a high near 70 degrees. Friday night, expect mostly clear skies and a low around 40. This has been the news for Wednesday, October 18th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hello, this is Cheryl Carstens Miller. Four years ago, you elected me to the school board, which I greatly appreciated. Now I'm running again for another term. Many of you may know me, especially from the epic school board meeting, where 700 people came out on the Palm and on Zoom. Thank you for that show of support. I have always known how much Telluride values our school district, but it was gratifying to see it so graphically. For those of you who don't know me, I have lived within the school district since 1987. I've gotten married, raised three children, and now have three grandchildren right here. I have had a passion in education since I was a child. I seek to always listen and learn. I ask hard questions, but work to be a team with the rest of the board and the administration. This has worked well to put our path of continuing improvement. Just last night, we saw data on student achievement that we are on the right path, but have more to do. Please vote for me, Cheryl Carstens Miller. I will work hard to keep our district strong and moving forward. Thank you. Hello, Telluride. This is Megan Barry with Rainbow Preschool, Rocky School Age Program, and Rascals Toddler Program. 
I have some exciting news. Our program board of directors will be hosting a new fundraiser and you are cordially invited. Are you feeling lucky? Well, come on down and test your luck at our Halloween-themed bingo party on Friday, October 27th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Elks. A $25 bingo card pack will be available at the door, the bar will be open, food available to order, and a bingo win will get you a donated prize package. So come on out in your best costume and win big at Rainbow Rockies Rascal's newest fundraiser and celebrate the season with your community. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.